here's what we're doing. We're going through church history, and this week we're officially on the early church heresy that we call Gnosticism. We're going to talk about it this week and talk about it next week. The lesson you've got is a good primer lesson. I will supplement it next week with some additional material, but not completely rewrite it. So part of what you've got today will be next week. In the meanwhile... I want to pick back up with something we had last week. And so we got in our Doctor Who time machine last week, and we went back to first century... We went back to the first century in Rome, and we asked ourselves, what would it be like to go to an early church service? And we did this for two weeks, and and we covered first century communion two weeks ago. Last week, we included first century singing. And in the process of that, I asked the question of you, what did the singing sound like? And evidently, uh, a lot of people were surprised to find out that we are able to reconstruct a first century Greek melody and do it with a great deal of accuracy because we have it written down on a tombstone that was found in a small village called Thalia outside of Ephesus. This would have been created, not not the melody itself, we don't know when it was created, though the form of the melody seems to have existed for several hundred years. But the, the, the actual tombstone dates to around the time Paul's writing the Ephesian letter. And that's the one of the letters where Paul tells the church to sing to one another, not just the Jewish psalms, but hymns and spiritual songs, which denotes more modern melodies. So it's a good melody. If you look at the, the uh, a blow-up of the pertinent part of the tombstone, you can see the Greek letters, and I won't go into greater detail with you than we did last week. But above those Greek letters, you see the musical notation form for ancient Greek. And that musical notation form, if you break it out, it looks kind of like C's and Z's and K's, but not totally. But it's those letters on top of the Greek that are the musical notation. And scholars are able to take that. They're able to figure out the scale, able to figure out the key within a semitone or two, or a tone, I guess is two semitones, um, and in the process, able to put it to the melody it would have been sung to. We don't know the vocal effect. We don't know if they sang in an opera voice or a pop voice uh, or however they might have sang. But and, and, and we don't know necessarily the length of all of the notes. But we've got some good idea of what it would be. So this is what the Greek melody would have sounded like in a first century hymn or spiritual song that the church might have been singing. Here it is. Oh, I translated it first. And this is, uh, if you're looking at, for example, there's Ancient Greek Music by West has a good uh, uh, write-up on this. There are a number of other good texts that write it up well. They give their own translations. Uh, I have a degree in Greek, so I just translated it myself the way I like it. This is a tombstone after all. While you live, shine. Don't grieve at all. Life is short. Ending time takes you away. or And then you die. Either way, here's the melody.
Now we also have for a number of first century Christian song lyrics. They're quoted in scripture. Paul quotes some in Philippians. He quotes some in Timothy. Uh, we see it in 1 Corinthians. He quotes some. Uh, there's uh, songs quoted in the book of Hebrews. And so we've got a number of first century songs. We see them in extra biblical writings as well. And they all, uh, not all, a good bit of them have some common themes to the lyrics. So at uh, the urging of those who were in class last week, I took this melody and I rewrote some first century type Christian lyrics to it so that we might have in English something that reflects a little bit of this. I then emailed it to Phil Keggy and said, our class has requested that you do this. Now, my instructions were probably not that clear. Phil texted me back and said, would you sing it for me so I have a clue? I texted him back and said, ha ha, you're very funny. Just do the best you can. So Phil did. Here are the lyrics that uh, uh, I wrote that are, are very typical first century Christian lyrics to a song. Jesus Christ set aside his Godhead, born as a human, died, resurrected. He's coming again, Savior of all. Now, it doesn't rhyme, but first century songs did not rhyme. And so this is, uh, that, that's a, an, an American uh, uh, feature of, of modern songs. Not so in the ancient times. So here we've got the lyrics. I sent it to Phil. Phil did it. But it's not, it, it, let's say it's inspired by the cyclos melody as opposed to being identical. He doesn't have a first century cathara or lyre. So he used a guitar, which is a medieval instrument. And so it's, and, and he did not like the discordant end. So he changed that a little bit and he added some harmony. But he did it for our class and it's wrong not to play it. So this is your Christian hymn from Phil Keggy inspired by the Cyclos melody. And uh, then we'll try to make this available to y'all some way after you listen to it. But hear what he did. Set aside 
corrected. He's coming again. Savior of all. So, yeah, he's tremendous. So I want to make that available for y'all. I think it's a tremendous song. Someone has already asked me, would you put, how many songs has Phil Keggy done for our class now? I'm at about 16 or 17. And they want all of that on one CD. The, the problem with that is a lot of the melodies are still under copyright. This melody is about 2,000 years old. The copyright ran out by now. I feel confident. I don't practice that kind of law, but I'll go out on that limb and say we're okay. But uh, the ZZ Top song of Esther Be The One, I'm not sure is out of copyright right yet. Uh, uh, or for that matter, the, the Daniel song by uh, Daniel is traveling tonight uh, on a plane or whatever that by Elton John. You know, I, I'm not sure all of those are out of copyright, so we've got to be a little careful with some of that. But I'll figure out how to make this available. And in fact, I think we'll probably give it to Pastor Brent as well. I think it's a tremendous worship song and uh, would be well suited for devotional worship at some point in time that fits in. So that's what singing might have sounded like uh, uh, in the first century church. Not might have. That is what singing would have sounded like in first century church with different instrumentation, rather, uh, uh, or acapella. Uh, but uh, uh, that's what we have. So for what it's worth. Now, shifting gears to this week. Paul Berg. Has anybody ever heard of this biologist? In 1975, Paul Berg assembled a group of scientists for the uh, uh, Asilomar Conference on Recombinant DNA. Did any of y'all go? <laughs> I didn't either. I was in high school and the teacher wouldn't let me out. But actually, at that point in time in my life, I was debating recombinant DNA as part of our high school debate topic because it was quite the buzz now, you may be saying, what is recombinant DNA? Break the word apart, say it differently. Say recombinant, maybe, and it helps you a little bit because you are taking, look, here's DNA. Remember it? It's our, under the microscope. We've got that double helix that Crick and Watson and, uh, uh, got the Nobel Prize for in the early 60s. That double helix what happens with recombinant DNA is scientists have figured out how they can go in and they can snip out part of the DNA and then put in DNA from something else. So they can combine DNA from two entirely different strands, beings, and make a brand new organism that's never existed before. And how many of you know that you've been eating some of this stuff? Uh-huh. Unless you have only eaten food from Whole Foods all your life. Genetically modified food is what it's called. Richard dealt with some genetic, genetically modified uh, rice cases, if I'm not mistaken. Because the genetically modified rice actually cross-pollinated and polluted Farmers who were growing real rice. I mean, this, this, this is, can be an invasive problem. And so scientists got together and said, how can we do this? Can you imagine the havoc it would wreak 
if they took some normal, and this was the fear that prompted the conference, if they took a, a normal organism that our body handles fairly well, but segged into it black death, such that our bodies then cannot fight it. For a while, it was rumored that the AIDS virus might actually have been a recombinant DNA creation, though I think that was dispelled. So recombinant DNA, this idea of taking from two different organisms and blending it together, can cause problems. Yeah, take a good look at that picture. Problems can arise when you mix things that don't belong. And that's your introduction to Gnosticism. Look, these ladies are down here trying to figure out exactly how it's going. No, it goes over there. No, that's the hand. No, that's the... They're over there. Yeah, I'll give you a copy afterwards. Um, Problems can arise when you mix things that don't belong. So here's what we need to do. We're going back in time again. We're getting back in the time capsule, but we're going to first century Greek thought instead of the first century Roman Empire. The Greek thought had permeated much of the Roman Empire. Alexander the Great, who was a student of Aristotle's, had spread Greek thought throughout what later becomes the Roman Empire. And the Greek thought of Aristotle, of his teacher, Plato, of his teacher, Socrates, all of this Greek thought was well permeated. And so the church goes forth into a culture and into an age where there is a great deal of understanding already. Now, here's what happens. Uh, Judge John, I need you to come up on stage for a minute, please. All right, many of y'all know John Clinton. He's a criminal judge here in, in our town. He's always sitting on the front row here with his wonderful wife, Luce. Now, here's the deal. Let's say... And I can only do this because I do not practice criminal law, so I never will be in this man's court. Let's say John is an absolute pagan, okay? I mean, he gets up in the morning singing to Zeus. He wants his wife to drop grapes in his mouth, reminiscent of Dionysius. And he's just praying for the excesses that come with that in the evening. Now, and that's a bad thing. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Now, John becomes a Christian. Sort of. He decides, yeah, I believe in this Jesus stuff. I've got some good friends. This makes sense. But he's got, how old are you, 35? Close. He's got 35 years of being pagan. With all that it means. And I can say to him, John, don't pray to Zeus anymore. I want you praying to the Lord. And he can, okay, I got that. And I can say to him, John, uh, uh, the orgies are a thing of the past. That's just not Christian behavior. I expect you to behave differently. And he's got that. And we can explain some things that are diametrically opposed to his life. But he's still got all of those thought patterns in his brain. And they affect how he sees Christianity. Thank you. You can go sit down. (laughs) Yeah, let's hear it for John. Now, so 
some people are going to be content to rewire their brains to Christian thought. They're going to seek to do that. But you and I, we've been around long enough to know there are all sorts of different kinds of people. And there are people who are going to say, well, yeah, I'm into rewiring my brain, but actually what I had was some really good stuff, and I'm going to figure out how it works because everything I knew can't be wrong. And in fact, I may have some new insights to offer the Christians. And so there's a recombinant DNA thing that was happening. Where some of Christianity gets snipped out. And some of paganism and, and Greek philosophy gets grafted in. So here's the example. Oh, get that off of there. Get that off of there. Here's the example. Good and evil. In Greek thought, you see it very clearly with Plato, and you see it written up in different ways in those post-Plato. But the idea became what is visible is evil. And there's Greek philosophy that says if you can see it, it's evil. If you don't see it, it's good. So matter, things that we touch, the pleasures of the flesh, those are evil. That stuff you see is evil. Now, Ideas, love, thoughts, the unseen is good. And you can see how this could kind of be twisted into biblical thinking. After all, the Bible often, it gives the idea of don't touch, limit yourself. Paul's writings talk about the sins of the flesh. And so this idea that what is seen is evil seems to combine pretty good with some shallow, superficial Christian reasoning. What is unseen is good. Is, is good. So now the body. You can see the body. The body is evil. Greek thought said the body is the prison house of the soul. And the idea for Plato and others is is to rid the soul of its shackles to the body. And death is seen as release because once you're dead, you get rid of the body. The flesh is eaten. In fact, sarcophagus comes from two Greek words, sarks, flesh, and phago, which means to eat. And the idea was that when you're put into the sarcophagus, your flesh is eaten up, but your soul remains. And it's finally been set free. And you have liberation and good. 
Now, this type of thinking gets grafted into a Christianity light, for lack of a better way of saying it. And as a result, we wind up with something that's very different. The visible, uh, I just went back to that slide. I'm sorry. Let me get that slide out of the way. Now, good, evil. There we go. What happens when Jesus comes on the scene? How do you, how do you integrate this philosophy with Jesus Christ? Do you say he was evil? You, he's got a body. Do you say he was bad? So, so, so this, this new way of thinking evolved as this thinkers tried to keep some Platonism and some Greek thought and meld it into Christianity. And I'd like to talk about that for a moment. The recombinant DNA of, of seeing these, this as two different things, that which is seen and unseen. How does it affect your views of Jesus? That's one we'll talk about next week. How does it affect your views about the whole world? I mean, after all, don't you read in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you see the earth? Of course. Do you want to say that God made something that was evil? The earth is evil. So how do you handle that? What do you do with that? What do you do with this idea that God made the heavens and the earth? It seems that Scripture might run afoul of your recombinant DNA theology. So it's really interesting what they did. They said, the Gnostics said, and there are lots of different branches of Gnosticism, but a general view was, you just need to know the knowledge. The knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. We get gnosticism from it. That's why gnosticism spelled G-N-O-S as opposed to just N-O-S because it comes from that Greek word G-N-O, gnosticism, which means knowledge. Now, how many of you have ever been to London? Okay, most of you. How many of you have taken those really cool taxis in London? Did you know before a taxi driver in London can get licensed, they take a test called the knowledge. That's the name of the test. And they study for three or four years to take that test. They have to, it's an elaborate examination. Sometime look it up on the internet and read about it. It will blow your mind to see what they have to do to be a taxi driver in London. Knowledge is something that doesn't come easy. It's something you have to learn. So what these Gnostics were saying is, is there's the ordinary church who believes ordinary things, but there are super spiritual Christians who have a certain knowledge that the ordinary Christian and church does not possess. 
And this special knowledge and insight is actually liberating. And it's a secret knowledge that Jesus has passed on. Now you may be saying, this is wacko. No, it's not. I want to urge on, this is a timeout for a moment. We live in an age where information is rampant. It's readily available. You get it off the internet. You get it in books. You get it everywhere. We live in an age where everybody who is not, uh, uh, no, that's not a fair thing to say. We live in an age where many people want to destroy the Christian faith. And one of the ways that it's done is by about every three or four years putting out a book saying, we found the ancient gospels that the church tried to destroy. The ancient teaching of the church that says Jesus was married. That says this and this and this. Or that and that and that. None of those are really new findings. Rarely are they. And none of them are of anything ancient. They all date from either the Gnostic movement or something after it. And so you see this written up as if this is authentic Christianity, and it's not at all. It's an early church heresy, and the reason you, you don't know about it that much is because the church stamped it out. And we're going to look at why as we move through this this morning, but this is important knowledge uh, awareness for us to have. So here it is, the knowledge. If you've got the secret knowledge, you'll understand, for example, how the world came to be. Now, one of the chief proponents of this was a fella in Rome named Valentinus or Valentinus. And Valentinus had a huge following. And he was causing problems in the Roman church in the last half of the 100s, 180. 170, 190, 200 A.D. And I want to give you a glimpse of how this so self-called Christian integrated his recombinant DNA to come up with just absurd theology to us. Here's what he said. You want to know how the world was created in light of all of this. Well, it was created by these ions, A-I-O-N-S. That was his word for gods. There are lots of gods that exist out there. In fact, there are 30 of them. And he starts naming them. There's this really big one called First Father. That First Father is the one who was responsible for creating the world. How did he do it? He had a conjugal encounter with another ion called silence. Now you, being astute people, might be saying, where do you read about silence in the Bible? You don't. She was silent. That's how she got her name. You read about first father, he was not so silent. So first father and silence get together and they have offspring who are gods. The offspring included mind and truth. 
mind and truth got together and they had some kitty gods too. One of them was called Word. One of them was called Life. And there are 30 of these when all is said and done. Church becomes one. That's how we become part of the church. As the church that exists, that's we become part of that God. So there are 30 of these. Now you're saying, that's goofy. And I'm with you. But you know the bizarre part? As goofy as we want to say it is, he had... Let me go back. This is worth looking at. See, this is called Know Your Bible Right. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus gives a parable. Let's see if I can get it on the screen. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's going to make you all just a little bit nauseated. Can you handle it? I can do it this way. That's a little bit better. Okay, this is Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he sends them out in the first hour. That's hour number one. Okay? And going out about the third hour, now we got hour number three, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, hey, you go into the vineyards too. Whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again on the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, He went out and he found others standing. He said, why do you stand here idle? They said, because blah, blah, blah. And on it goes. Now, Valentinus would tell you that there's a secret meaning here that ordinary people don't get. You want the knowledge? You want the secret? You want to unlock the code? Someone who's good in math, work with me. Who's good in math? Steve Taylor, come back! We'll do it together, fans. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He got the first hour plus the third hour plus the sixth hour plus the ninth hour plus the eleventh hour equals thirty ions. Ooh, you've got the secret knowledge. Jesus was teaching there are thirty ions in the kingdom of heaven. You just gotta have the secret knowledge to unlock it. By the way, Valentinus would say, How old was Jesus before he started his ministry? 30. He waited 30 years, one for each ion, before he started his ministry. 
So you can take this and you can learn this secret knowledge and you too can be one of the enlightened ones. Salvation is based upon learning these things. It's not based on sin and salvation from sin. So, into this world comes this fellow named Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, we call him Irenaeus of Lyon because Lyon, France is where he was from. Uh, uh, where he lived, actually. He grew up in Smyrna. But he was from Lyon when he wrote. He became the Bishop of Lyon. At the time, it carried its Roman name, Lud Dunham. Uh, Lyon today. But he would have known himself as Irenaeus of Lugdunum. Um Anyway, Irenaeus goes down to Rome to fight against this heresy. The heresy also broke out in his own church later. Irenaeus wrote a book against the heresy. We've got his books today, and we're able to read them. And it's fascinating how he did it. Now, Irenaeus' argument goes something like this. First of all, the apostles were in the know. They were Jesus' trusted companions. The apostles did not simply flame out, but Irenaeus was able to say, I can follow the links in the chain. Jesus has the apostle John. John had the protege, Polycarp. The martyr Polycarp, we studied the martyrdom of Polycarp a few weeks back. That was the Polycarp who was the student of John. Polycarp was the teacher of Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is able to say, look, everywhere in the church, Orthodox church, the bishops that are there were appointed by bishops that were appointed by the apostles. We've got direct links. We didn't make this stuff up. And he goes a step further. You'll notice in almost every painting of Irenaeus, he's holding a book. Do you know what the book is? It stands for the Bible. Now, Irenaeus is born around 130 AD, about 30 years after the death of John. He's born about 130 A.D. He's writing in 175, 180 A.D. By that point in time, he is able to use Scripture as apostolic authority. And in the process of reading Irenaeus, just read Irenaeus, just the works we've got now, he quotes from every New Testament book except Philemon, which is, what, 20 verses of Paul saying uh, to Philemon, let the slave go, and Third John, which is even shorter. And that's not because he didn't recognize them as Scripture. We don't know why it is. I don't see how he needed to quote from them myself. But he quotes from every other book of the Bible or New Testament at that point in time already. And he does it as authority. He calls it perfect. He calls it the mainstay and pillar of our faith. You know, this, this you, scholars uh, uh, 
you know, can write on this in, in a variety of ways, but, but history itself unfolds that the church in its embryonic stages already recognized scripture as scripture, the New Testament as scripture, the words and teachings of the apostles as scripture. And so through all of this, Irenaeus goes after Valentinus and he does it and 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 here's his I, I grabbed a couple of things out for you to hear. Here's what he says in his preface. Error in truth or in fact does not show its true self. Lest on being stripped naked it should be detected. Instead, it craftily decks itself out in an attractive dress and thus by an outward false appearance presents itself to the more ignorant as truer than truth itself. Now, I'm not in the business right now in this class of standing up and indicting other people's belief systems. But there are belief systems out there that in some ways would remind you of some of this. I have a great deal of respect for uh, uh, people who are in the Latter-day Saint Mormon church. I have a lot of dear friends who are Latter-day Saints and Mormons. Um, And they don't They do not ascribe to this idea that it's secret knowledge that gets you there. They don't ascribe to the idea that the body is evil. But they do believe that there was a God, cosmic God, who had cosmic sex with another cosmic God and produced all of these cosmic God offsprings of which we are some, and that if you get baptized and, and you're good, faithful Mormons and you marry and you have offspring in the Mormon church, some point in, in eternity, you get to populate your own planet with your own celestial offspring. And the Mormon church believes that view is consistent with Scripture. They will say it's just extra information that you get when you read the Book of Mormon and and other writings associated with it from the prophets of the Mormon church. Now, you know, somewhere in here, we've got to make decisions. What do we believe? And intelligent decisions, I hope. Not one simply, well, I grew up, my mom, sitting right over there, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up as a, so I'm just going to stay in it. We need to make intelligent decisions about what we believe and why we believe. And here was the three-step approach that Irenaeus used. Step number one, he'd say, what is the doctrine? I'm going to examine the doctrine. Step number two, what is the basis or the authority for the doctrine? Step number three, what does Scripture say about it? That's a great approach. That's a great approach to anything in this regard. 
And so with that, he does. Now, uh, I got to pause for a moment and take that off screen. I really like the way he does it, and he uses Scripture effectively to do it. But what I also like about Irenaeus is then he says, now let's look at it logically. Let's just set aside Scripture. And when he does that, it's kind of funny because he, he does what he says. He says, let's take it out of its marvelous dress, the first father in silence and word and mind and life and, and prudence and earnestness and all these other ions that he had. He says, you know, if you're going to make stuff up, let's make it up this way. Indeed, such a concoction of names and such boldness to add the names to his belief system without blushing. He's given the names to his gods. Nothing, therefore, prohibits anyone else from proposing names for the same system. Just take his system, but don't use his pious sounding name. First father meets silence. Instead, let's just put our own names to it. There exists a power which I call a squash. And with this squash coexists a power to which I give the name utter emptiness. Now squash and utter emptiness brought forth a fruit which we call cucumber. With this cucumber there coexists a power to which I give the name pumpkin. And he continues to have his offspring. And frankly, if I kept going, it'd just make you leave for lunch because the food starts getting tastier as he goes down the chain. You know, just to look at things and to examine things and to use our minds is so very important as we're trying to figure out how to live in this world and what we believe. And so with that, I ask you this question. Why does any of this matter to us? Why is this anything other than perhaps for some an interesting history lesson? Well, it matters for reasons I'm going to give you in the points for home, but I'm going to give you one additional matter as well. And this is your bait for next week. It matters because it helps us understand Scripture. Valentinus was not the first to have this concept and to try and do the recombinant DNA and the integration. It was done by others and it was done before the New Testament was finished being written. There was a gentleman we'll talk about next week named Serenthus or Corinthus, who was in Ephesus where John himself was before John was dead. In fact, the, the one, one historical account says that John went into the bathhouse to clean. And when he went into the bathhouse, Corinthus was in there. And John turned around and left. Said, I don't want to be in there. Lightning may strike. The roof may come down. The guy's a heretic. But we will look at 1 John chapter 1 and 2 next week, and we will see how 1 John itself was written to address some of this heresy. We can't understand part of Scripture if we don't understand this. So it's relevant and matters because it helps us understand Scripture, but it's also relevant and it matters because it helps us be intelligent about today. And, and that's, I, I get so frustrated with, with the world treating Bible-believing Christians as if they're blind idiots. When the truth of the matter is, is we, above all others, have reason to be carefully thoughtful, 
mindful people. What we believe is the truth. And the truth is subject to scrutiny and examination. But when you examine it, you need to do so carefully and intelligently. So here are your points for home with that. Or fruit for home, as I'm calling it in this session. 1 Timothy 6, 20-21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is a first biblical reference to Gnosticism. That is the Greek word Gnosticism there. Or Gnosis, knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You know, error rarely just jumps out and gets you to follow it. Error is very subtle. It creeps in just a little bit. And it moves just a little bit. And it moves just a little bit. We teach our children sexual purity. But we don't teach our children sexual purity out of a fear that they'll just decide one day, instead of being sexually pure, I think I will give my body to whomever wants it. No, the way that happens and what they have to be careful of and what we teach our children is it's subtle. It's, okay, I'll erase this boundary and just move it over here. And then I'll erase this boundary and then just move it over here. Yes, children, I'm talking to you. And then I'll erase this boundary and move it over here. No. We need to be very, very careful what we're about. Because we want to hold on to truth. And, 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 and I want to be diligent in study. And I want to be diligent in what I teach you. And, and I want to be diligent in what I write for you. Because it's so important that we hold on to truth. That's what we need. Look at this. 2 Peter 1.16. The apostles did not follow cleverly invented stories when they told us about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't make the stuff up. They died for what they believed. They gave their life for what they believed. Not many people give their life for something that's fictional. That they've purposefully made up. People may make something up for money. They may make something up for convenience. They may make something up to solve an awkward situation. But nobody makes something up that creates awkward situations. That that destroys their money. And takes their life. So I'm going to read scripture for what it is. And I'm going to let it transform me. I'm going to mold my life after what I read and learn. I'm going to let it change me. And then the last point for home is from 2 Timothy. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me, what I've entrusted to him. You can translate it either way. Paul doesn't say, I know what I've believed. Scripture doesn't teach we need more knowledge. 
head knowledge to escape this body and find meaning in life. Scripture teaches that God made us all as one human being, body, soul, spirit, one human being, and we are sinful, and it's the sin which prohibits us from being in fellowship with God, and Jesus paid the price for the sin. It's not a question of what we're believing, it's who we believe. Are we putting our trust in some religious system or are we putting our trust in a Lord and Savior? And uh, I've just decided I'm going to cling to Jesus. I hope you're working. We'll look at 1 John next week together. Let me pray over you and we'll be done. Lord, I ask your blessings on us. I pray you'll give us clarity of vision and insight that you'll continue to encourage us to stay in your word. We thank you for the people who have been willing to give their lives over the centuries to make sure that we have your holy word with us. And we thank you that we have the honor in this country to be able to study it openly, be able to discuss it with no fear of the government and who might be listening and what they might be concerned with. Lord, I pray that we'll be about your business as we do that and as we share it with others. Through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.